Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here, and we thank you that you love us so much and that you have a great plan and that you're, you are always in charge of what we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start the book of Ruth tonight. So Yay. as we do with all, all new books, we do the introduction. Uh, uh, we don't know who wrote the book. It's generally attributed to Samuel, but nobody knows for sure who wrote the book. Uh, we know that it was written during the pe- uh, period of the Judges. That's about what we know about the book. It's not, it's not one of the most well-known uh, stories uh, as far as history of it. It's a very, it is one of the beautiful love stories. It's one of the two books named after a woman. And it really is a beautiful love story, but it's more than just a physical love story. It is a picture of God's love for us and his redeeming of us as well as we're going to look into this because as we look at this, Ruth is going to represent the church. Okay, she starts out as a Moabite. She always is a Moabitess, but she starts out as somebody who's outside of Israel and becomes redeemed into Israel and then becomes part of the royal line of Jesus. Uh, So we see a beautiful story about God's redemption through her because Jesus is going to be represented by Boaz. The kinsman redeemer, the one that lifts out, lifts out uh, Ruth out of the out of the pits of where she's at and brings her into great blessings. So we see we see a lot of things in there. We see a story of disobedience that we're going to see between uh, Elimelech and Naomi. They leave the promised land to go into a foreign land. Their sons marry foreign wives. I mean, there's all kinds of problems, especially at the beginning of the beginning of the book shows God's grace and the fact that all things work together for good in the long run. So there's lots of things we're going to learn from the book of Ruth. It's a very, very beautiful book as, as we go, go into this. Uh, kind of an outline, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is them departing the promised land to go into Moab, kind of representing the sin, leaving, leaving God's plan to go into the world. Verses 6 through 22 is going to be their Naomi and Ruth's return or repentance to go back to go back to where they're supposed to have been all along. Chapter 2 is all about uh, Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field, being provided for by him, and that's where the real part of the love story comes in. And we'll have some fun. We'll have some fun when we get into that part. Uh, verse 3, uh, chapter 3 is going to be the proposal and the gift that he gives gives to her. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, is going to be their marriage and how he arranges that. Uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 16, is the birth of Obed. Verse 4, uh, 17 through 22, is the genealogy of, of Obed through David and goes all the way back into Tamar. So we'll go in, we'll cover who Tamar is if you don't know who Tamar is. So that's a pretty simple outline for the book. It's, it's uh, designed as a book that is a story. This, this book is critically accepted by liturg- literature, all the places other than, other than all the quotes about God. They don't particularly like those, but uh, they look at it as a beautiful love story, and it stands on its own as a love story. But as for us as Christians and those who believe the Bible, it's much deeper than just a love story. So we're going to get started. Ruth chapter 1. 
Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the, when the, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went and sojourned in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his son, Malin and Chilion, Ephraites and Bethlehem Judah, of Bethlehem Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Oprah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. And Malin and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left with of her two sons and her husband. All right. So we're starting out with this first little section. And uh, it says, it came to pass in the days of the judges. So this sets the time. There's no question about when this story occurs. Sometime in the time of the judges. Now, when exactly in the time of the judges? I don't know precisely. But we're going to have Obed, Jesse, and David being born. So we're probably somewhere 80 to 100 years before the last judge. All right? Just giving you because there's three generations before David. And uh, David, of course, is going to be anointed king. And he's going to be in the time of uh, Samuel. Well, again, we're talking, we're talking 80 to 100 years, and I, I didn't actually look that up to see how far back. Uh, probably two or three judges back, uh, just because of the, well, 80, we're talking one to two generations, if you want to talk generations. Uh, because you've got Obed, well, you've got Boaz and, and Ruth, you're going to have Obed, then you're going to have Jesse, and then you're going to have David. So it can almost be three generations back when you go all the way back to, to three. And it all depends on how old they were when all of these things happened. All right? So they, they, there was a famine in the land, which kind of makes sense because we all know that Israel was being judged frequently for their disobedience because we just got done with the book of Judges. And remember in the book of Judges, Israel would go into sin, God would judge them. He would, ju he would judge them through famines and bad, bad growing conditions. And then he'd put somebody to enslave them. And when they were enslaved, those people stole all their food as much as possible. And we saw that over and over again. So we're in a place where they're leaving the promised land because there is famine in the land. And they're going to go to Moab. And you have to think about this. The promised land, remember, represents spiritual, victorious living. Okay? God sent them to the promised land and said, I'm going to provide everything for you. So what they're doing is leaving the victorious promised land, the victorious life that they're supposed to have, to go back to the world. Because Moab, in this case, is going to represent the world. All right? Now, Moab is an actual place and all of that, but this is the idea of how we live our lives so often. Instead of living in the rest, finished work of Christ and our, our faith rest in Christ, in the victory that he gives, so often we will try to go back to the world and try to enjoy the world. Now, if anybody has ever tried to do that, it does not work. 
to go back to the world. You never, as a, if you are a true believer, you don't feel right going back to the world because you know you don't belong there. The world looks at you and they know that you don't belong there, so they never treat you the way you remember being treated in the past, which wasn't all that good anyway, usually. So they're leaving God's promise of blessing, even though there's a hard time. And remember, we've talked over and over, God puts us in seasons of trials to see, do we trust him? This family is not going to trust him. They're going to go, times are hard here, let's run. And you know, so often we do that. God, things are getting difficult. I got to go find someplace else. I got to move someplace. I got to go, you know, this church is asking me to do too much. I got to go, go, go change church. I got to change this. I got to do this. You know, um, and you know, if, if you're running away from problems, the problem is the problems go with you. Not aiming it at you, no. <laughs> but, but it is true. Anybody who's ever just gone out and, and moved, you know, whether it's changing churches or making a big move, and a lot of times this happens with pastors. Pastors get into a church. The average lifespan of a pastor is three to five years in a church. And then things start getting, their honeymoon period gets over, uh, you know, life gets tough, and they decide, well, this just isn't the ministry for me, and they go to another church. And that's where I was headed to. You, you just take your, because if you don't recognize that you're the problem or part of the problem, all you're going to do is everywhere you go, and if you've moved enough times or changed jobs or, or changed churches, you end up finding the same problems all over, play, all over the time. And for most of us, we're pretty, pretty dumb and thick, and we don't realize that it's us that's causing the problem until somebody maybe points it out and says, you know, maybe you need to change. Uh, you know, and that doesn't mean that every move is wrong, every time we change a church it's wrong, every time we change jobs it's wrong, but we need to look at our motivation. Are we running from problems or is God leading us to make those changes? In this case, I'm going to tell you God did not make them, you know, was not leading them to leave the promised land and go to Moab. Okay? Uh, now he did great things with it. We're going to see that all things work together for good and God blesses in the long run after many bad things happen. But it was not his plan. It was not his ideal plan for them to run away from the promised land and spiritual rest and blessing into the world. Annie? The last time I was studying this, I was wondering, because so much worked out in the plan. I know you always say the plan of God is simple. And even David said, make my plan simple. But it's almost like that's exactly what God wanted was for her to be David's ancestor. It is what God used. God knows what we're going to do and has the plan already made out knowing what we're going to do. So in one sense, yes. I mean, if, she, if they hadn't gone there, then Ruth wouldn't have married, married the son, and then they, she wouldn't have come to Bethlehem and been the ancestor of Jesus, maybe. Because you know, who knows what God would have done anyway. Okay? And we've got to be careful. We can't play these what-if gods because that, if we start doing that type of thinking, then we get into this idea, well, I've got to go sin so God can give me the grace so that he'll bless me and, and give me these good things and look at, all the good that, look at all the good that he did. And we look back over our life and say, you know, I did all these things wrong, but look what God did. 
Yes, look what God did, but what would God have done if we hadn't done all that stuff? He just knew that we were going to do it and put the plan in place in spite of us, not because of us. Okay, and this plan for David's ancestry worked out in spite of what they did. And what would have happened otherwise? Who knows? David still would have been born somehow, some way. You know, it just would have been through a different, different mother. But you know, God has a plan, and we want to be careful because you know, leading, going to where you say people can get into this idea. Well, well, because good things happened, you know, then it was it was meant to be. Well, God knew it was going to happen, and the good things happened in spite of what they did, not because of what they did. When I do sinful things, God blesses me in spite of what I do, not because of what I do. And so this is what we see in this book. You know, would David have been born if we had this? Well, maybe not David, but there would have been a king after God's heart, you know, you know and it probably would have been David, you know, through a different lineage. Okay, we don't know. We can't play the what-if games because God knew what was going to happen. And we need to keep this in mind. I have often heard people say, you know, well, if I could go back, I would change such and such in my life. I've come to the conclusion I don't want to change anything in my life because everything that I have gone through has made me who I am today. There's a reason for it. Right, there's a reason for Now, does it mean it was the best way to get to where I am today? Not necessarily. But if I had gone back and changed the event that, that made me who I, you know, some part of who I am today, what would I be? Who would I be? You know, God would have blessed. God would have made arrangements. But I wouldn't be who he had me to be now. now. Okay? And so this is something we want to, we want to be careful of the what if. God, if, if I had done this, if I had done this, what, what if, you know, God, what if you had done something different in the Bible? You know, we... God had a perfect plan, and his plan knows what we're going to do, and he encompasses that actions in our plan. Does it mean that that's really what he wanted us to do? No, he, he really has something he'd say, I really, I really wish you had gone this way, that made you, had made this choice. But he knows what choice we were going to make, and he put the plan in place for the choice we were going to make. Now, how would life have been different? Yeah, who knows? God's the only one that would know yeah. what, what would happen if I had made better choices all my life. Percy, back then I wouldn't have known because <laughs> I wasn't how, how, playing now. Probably wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have cared, and so I don't even think about what if. It's almost kind of like the devil is. It puts is. that into you so you can kind of doubt God's wisdom yeah. and how your life goes. Or justify sin. Or justify sin or have regret. We have a choice, but God knows what our choice is going to be, and I want to be careful how far I fall, fall down that route, okay, because that takes us into the Arminian, and I was Arminian for a long time that God looked, knew the decisions and made his plans according to my decisions, but that takes away from his sovereignty. God does what he wants to do, okay? The apostle Paul, while he saw riding on his horse down the road to Damascus, gets knocked off his horse and blinded, and he turned, decides to follow Jesus, now, I think he was coerced into following Jesus in a, in a sense. You know, he's been blinded. He's be talking personally to Jesus, and he's being told it's hard to kick against the pricks. But he had the option to say, no, I'm not going to follow you. Okay? Nobody in their right mind would have said, no, I'm not going to follow you when you've blinded me and, and talked to me personally. So, you know, 
what, did God make him make that decision? Yeah. He made a situation that if, if you were sane, you weren't going to make any other decision, and Saul was sane. <laughs> okay. Um, and this is where predestination and free will get to be very intertangled and very hard to understand. I've been struggling with that whole topic for over, over 40 years, trying to figure out you know, how to put the two together. And I'm sure God has no problem putting them together, and maybe in heaven he'll show us how they go together. Uh, but in this case, we see bad things at the start that God blesses. Okay, he doesn't bless the bad thing, he blesses them because of grace. Okay, and we gotta keep this in mind. When I sin, grace abounds. Okay, but as Paul said, should I go out and sin just so I can have more grace? Absolutely not. Okay, because we've said over and over again, sin has consequences. What's the consequence for this sin? Naomi loses her husband and her two boys. Pretty severe consequence for being disobedient to God. So we look at this over and over again. Sin always has consequence. Sometimes very steep consequences. So we want to be very careful. I mean, yes, God turns us around. He blesses it. He brings about David through this process. But it doesn't mean that it was a good thing that they left the promised land to go to Moab. Uh, for those who don't know what Moab is, Moab was the nation that was founded by the birth from Lot's oldest daughter, the insensual ac activity between her and her father, remember, in Genesis. And that, remember, comes from when they leave Sodom and Gomorrah, they head out. Lot's wife is turned to salt because she looks back with longing on the, on, the, on the town. They move up into the mountains and it becomes obvious that Lot is never leaving the mountain. Okay, he, he's gone there, he's going to be a hermit for the rest of his life and his daughters are with him. And his daughters kind of get together and say, you know what, we're never going to, if we're, we're up here with our dad, we're never going to meet a man and get married. And so they come up with this plan to get him drunk and sleep with him and they both end up having a child who becomes a nation uh, against Israel <laughs> over time. In one sense, they are going back to family. They're going to Moab. But Moab's been a pain in the neck to Israel all along, too. Because remember, when, there, when Moses was coming up the east side of the River Jordan, the, one of the first places he came to was Moab. Okay? And Moab had King Balak. And Balak knew that Moab was coming, uh, Israel was coming, and he hires Balaam to curse Israel. And all they asked was, please let us cross your country and we'll pay for everything that we eat or drink. You know, we'll, we'll pay the toll for the road and you know, we will pay you money. And he says, no. And remember, Balaam then tells him how to get Israel to curse themselves. He says, you know, hey, I can't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves. You know, send your women in and lead the men astray into worshiping idols. They did. God slew tens of thousands of men and people because of their disobedience and all those problems. So this is Moab. <laughs> this is the country that Elimelech and leads his family to go to. Okay? They're not a very good one, a good neighbor. They're, they're idol worshipers. They're not followers of God. And so this is what he chooses to go to, going back into the world. 
okay, God, see you later. You're not taking care of us. We're going to go into a world and take care of ourselves. And, you know, many times we've all done something of that nature. God, you're just not doing what I want you to do. I'll go take care of myself, and we'll just leave you behind for a while. And life gets pretty miserable when we do that. Verse 2, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and that means my God is king. The man named my God is king decides to leave the territory where God's king and go into the world where the idols are reigning. And he's married to Naomi, which means my delight. She's got a really nice name, my delight. Uh, and they have two sons named Malin and Chilion, and they have really wonderful names. Uh, Malin means sick. Yeah, I, I can't imagine naming my kids sick. <laughs> Chilean's name is even worse. Pining, de, being wasting away is your desire, is your desire after something you can't have. Uh, usually we talk about a person pining away after they've lost their first love. They're, they're wasting away in regrets and desires. And they name their children Pining and Sick. Can you imagine naming your kids <laughs> Sick and Pining? Now, I don't know if... Yeah, and people have made, made this up, you know, said this, that Malin probably was a sickly child, which is why he would have gotten the name sick. Uh, and pining was never, never happy, always complaining. And, you know, you got to think about this, you know, what, what interesting people are going to get are carried, carried away to this place. And, and they go and they live in Moab. And it, uh, after a while, Elimelech dies. Now, if I was Naomi at this point, my husband has died. I own land in the promised land in Bethlehem. I still have two sons. I would probably go back home. There was still famine as far as they knew, but, but she decides not to go home. Okay? I don't understand that because my, my, my thought would be, you know, hey, my husband's just died. It's a terrible place. I've got these younger sons that are getting to be marriageable age, because we're going to find out they're getting married in the next, next uh, verse. And you would think that at least Naomi would say, I want, my, I want my boys to marry good Jewish girls. But she decides to stay in Moab. <laughs> now, I don't know what, what kind of house they had or what, you know, what they were renting or whatever. Uh, maybe it was good enough that it, you know, she thought it was a good place to be. I don't, we don't know. It doesn't tell us a lot. But she decides to stay in the world. Just the idea of moving two sick, sickly boys might have been more than she wanted to handle. Who knows? That's a possibility. I've, uh, I don't know. It doesn't, there's not enough there to tell us why she made this decision. All it does, I look at it and go, and to me, it's a strange decision. Okay, my husband's dead. Why not go back home? Okay, yeah, there's maybe a famine out there. Maybe they are just so sick it's not worth, worth going. Maybe they're already in love with the girls that they, want, they end up getting married in the, to in the next verse. I don't, I don't know. And in verse 4, And they took them wives, the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Now, we don't know how long they were dwelling before. We don't know if this 10 years is the whole time they were there or the time that it was after they got married. Okay? So we don't know exactly. Again, there's not enough detail to know. They were in Moab for at least 10 years. And they married the girls, and the name Orpah means gazelle. Probably graceful type picture of the gazelle. And Ruth's name means friendship. And boy, has she got the right name. 
Okay, we're going to find that she definitely has the right name. And Naomi has the right name, Delight, because she's going to get delighted when, after a while. <laughs> and it says they took and they lived well there. And then verse 5, and Malan and Chilion died, also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So Naomi loses all of her bloodline family. Okay? And she is left with two daughter-in-laws and her. And probably, as we're going to find out later on, she's starting to feel bad. Okay? They lived, they moved, they moved away from the promised land into the world. Sin has a consequence. And what usually happens when we go through the consequence of sin, we complain. We complain to anybody who will listen, and we also complain to God. And usually our complaint goes something like, God, how could you let this happen to me? And God's saying, well, you're not where I want you to be, so I'm trying to get you where I want you to be. It's not me who caused it. Okay? But we always will start out by blaming God. I shouldn't say always, but most of the time we will start out by blaming God. How could God let this happen? Nations do this all the time. How can God let this happen? The lost world is the same thing. How can God let all these bad things happen? Well, number one, you're not one of his children. So he's, he's not letting anything happen. You're getting the result of your sin. You're reaping what you're sowing. And, you know, so we look at this and we have this complete sadness going on in her life. She's reaping the sin, the consequence for the sin. They left Israel to live in the world, and now she's bereft of her husband and her two sons. And even though they were sick and pining, she's still bereft of her sons. You know, this is not a, you know, even if you have sickly kids, you don't want to see them dead before you. And so this is where she's at right now. All right, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter and daughters-in-law and that she might return to the country, uh, return from the com- country of Moab, for she had heard that the, in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go you and return to your mother's, return each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we return with you unto your people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you, why you, go, with, will you go with me? For are there yet any more sons in my womb that you may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am old, too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieves me much for your sakes on the hand of the Lord is gone against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Ophrah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave to her. And she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and unto her gods. Return you with her, your sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave or to return from following after you. For with it, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, will, will I die. And, where, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death 
part you and me. When she saw that she was steadfast-minded to go with her, then she left speaking again unto her. All right. So Naomi now, after she's lost her husband and her two, two sons, hears that God has blessed Israel and given them food. She should have known that he was going to do that anyway. They should, and her husband should have known that originally. But now she hears there's good news in Bethlehem. There's food. Uh, and she decides that it's time to go home. After she's lost everything and, and everybody, it's time to go home. And they start on the trip, and Oprah and, and uh, Ruth start out with her. They go with her. And, you know, they're starting to go, go back, and it says, uh, as on the way, they kinda, you kind of picture this. Naomi kind of looks around and says, you know, why am I dragging these two Moabitists home with me? There's nothing there for them, okay? I have no more sons for them to marry. You know, and she's going to go on more into this. And remember, in this Jewish law and even in that area, when a man died not having an heir, the oldest brother left would, was to marry that, his wife, and the first son that he had belonged to the brother, the dead brother, so that to, and would take his name, okay? And so Naomi's looking at her daughters and saying, there's no reason for you to come, come home with me. There's, you know, there's nothing there. Okay, now she's aware of the kinsman redeemer aspect and everything, but as far as she's concerned, there's no real reason to bring two Moabitists home because most of Israel doesn't like Moab. Okay, they've been harassing them. They've conquered them to several times during the Jewish time and put them under tribute. Uh, they harass them under Balak. They're going to harass them all through the rest of their time in existence. Okay, this is a big deal. And she's looking at them and going, why do I want to bring these girls home with me? There's nothing there for them. And so she looks at him and says, you know, in verse 8, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, for you have dealt as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Saying, okay, you've been so kind with me. You haven't abandoned me when your husband's died. Uh, but go back home. Go back home to your homes. Now, there, are, there is a school of thought that says that Ophrah and Ruth were sisters. This verse kind of indicates to me that they're not sisters because she tells them, go each of you to your mother's house. Now, it is technically possible that they're half-sisters and going home to different mothers, but I don't, I don't, I don't really believe that, okay? Uh, but if you hear somebody saying that they were sisters, there is a Jewish tradition that says that, and it's been picked up over the years by many teachers, and I'm not going to argue it. I just think that this verse kind of indicates to me Probably not, okay? Because I think if she would have, if they were sisters, she would have said, go to your father's, uh, your father's house uh, and, and be taken care of. Small point, but just if you hear this, hear this viewpoint spoken, I've heard it spoken at times when, when this has come up, when this story comes up, so you're aware of it, okay? There is a tradition that says that. And... Uh, and it says in verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So it's basically saying, go home and find a new husband. <laughs> okay? Ideally, they must have been still young. You know, I don't know what, how old they got married. You know, if they got married at the usual age, it would have been around 
14 or so, 13, 14, 15 or 16, you were starting to be considered an old maid. Uh, so they were probably in their mid-20s when she's telling them to go back home, still young enough to get married, but being considered a little older. But they would have been considered widows, so that would have been a little more acceptable. Uh, but she says, go home. Go and find some husbands. And may God bless you. You know, go, go find rest. And she kissed them goodbye, and they all wept. They had a good cry. Which indicates these girls tended to seem to have very much loved Naomi. They were, they were willing to go with her, and she's saying, go, go back. And, uh, and verse nine, 10, and they said unto her, surely we will return with you to your people. Okay, so we're seeing this love and this care that, you know, hey, you know, we're family now, we want to follow you. And this is kind of interesting because it does show that there's a loving relationship between these mother and daughter-in-laws. Uh, this isn't, we just can't wait to get away from ma, you know, mother-in-law time. This is, we love her. And we see this. They're, they're crying with her. They're, they're saying, hey, we'll, we'll go with you. And maybe they realize that they're at that age where it's going to be harder to find a husband. I don't, who knows what, what their thinking is on that. But they both say, hey, we're going to go with you. And Naomi says, you know, turn again, my daughters. Will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that you may have your husbands? In other words, am I going to have any more kids? You know, uh, because, they're, you know, because if she had kids, they would be their husband. And we see this going way back to Tamar and, and everything. We see this whole issue going in where Tamar was not given the son that she was supposed to be given from Judah. And, uh, and then she ended up tricking Judah into sleeping with her and, and uh, all kinds of things when we get to, because Tamar's in this line. And so we see this, you know, are there, are there any more sons? You know, go back home. He goes, I'm old. I'm too old to have a husband. And by the way, even if I did have a husband, and I somehow got pregnant tonight, are you going to wait for those young boys to grow up and be your husbands? Because she's making a very strong point to them. Okay, uh, girls, you're 20-something. You're even if I had boys tonight and they grow up, you're going to be 36 or so, 36 or more by the time they grow up enough to be your husband. Okay. Uh, are you really going to wait that long? You know, would they even want you? <laughs> you, know, you know, would, would a young man want somebody, you know, that old and knowing that he had to, you know, would be a problem? She said, go back home. There's nothing, there's nothing here for you. Okay. Number one, I'm not going to have children and even if I did, you're not going to wait. You're not going to want. You're not going to want to marry a boy. You know, for is what she's telling them. You know, you're not going to want to marry this young boy. And uh, and then she says, "For it grieves me much that, for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." Here she's starting to show she is no longer the happy person she left. God is against me. You know, oh woe is me. God is against me. We went out in sin. We suffered consequence, and God is against me. You know, but you know, this is a song we hear from so many people all the time. You know, we live in sin and then we blame God for being against us. God, you promised to bless me, but you're not, you're not living the way I told you. But God, you promised to bless me. It's all your fault that I'm not being blessed. Now, the problem is God never promises to bless us. He promises to meet all our needs. 
And even Jesus came out and he said over and over again, the world hates me, they will hate you. And yet so many Christians believe that once you get saved, everything is going to be a bed of roses and it's all going to be hunky-dory and you're not going to have any problems for the rest of your life. Now, the sad thing is there's a lot of Christian churches that teach that kind of garbage. And they're not, they're not getting it from the Bible. Okay? God runs us through tests all the time. And a matter of fact, if you think that you're supposed to be blessed, you might just become Job and have everything taken away from you just to prove that God is in charge. But you know, that is true. You know, if we just say, God, you know, we know that all things work together for good. And as my statement so many times is, I've oftentimes told God, God, I don't understand it, but I know you've got a good plan for what's going on. This is not the attitude of Naomi at this point. It's going to become her attitude by the end of the book. But right now, she does not see how anything good is going to come out of this. And, you know, if we were in her place, we might very well be doing the same thing. You know, God, I'm all miserable. You've taken everything away from me. I have no sons. And, you know, you've taken away everything. I'm no longer going to be happy. I have nothing to be happy. I'll never be happy again in the rest of my life because you've taken everything away from me. You know, not reckoning that God has a plan. She has not read the book of Job, obviously, where Job says God has a plan. She hasn't read, definitely hasn't read, read, read the book of Romans that God has a plan. But you know, that idea is all through the Old Testament. God has a plan. He's going to bless. He's got a plan for us always, and it is a good plan. And we need to keep that in mind. God is good always. Okay? He has a good plan for us, even when it looks like it is a miserable plan. Okay? And if we look at it in the middle of the problems, we look at it and say, God, you're a lousy planner. How can you plan something like this? And many of us have said just that kind of, maybe not in those words, but basically we've said it. God, I just don't understand. How can you do this, God? You know, you know I'm supposed to get some blessing, and this, I don't see how this can work out for good, instead of just trusting in God. And this is why I keep challenging us. Are we willing to trust in God when everything seems to be going wrong? That's when, it, that's when it really comes down to proof. Do I believe God when he says that all things work together for good? Do I believe that God is good all the time? The time that I prove that is not when I'm on the top of everything and everything's being blessed. It's easy to trust God when that happens. The sad thing is usually we stop trusting God when those things are going on because we tr start trusting in the gifts and forget about the giver. And then God has to teach us that he's the giver and takes away the gifts. The hard time to really trust him is when everything seems to be going wrong. When we've lost our family, when we've lost our wealth, when we've lost our job, when our house burns down, when, when the cars get repossessed, whatever it might be. And we go, God, I just don't understand what you're doing, but you've got a plan. You know, and that's the big part. That little but, but, you've got a plan, God. God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust that you have a plan. She's, Naomi's not at that point at the moment. Okay? She says, God's against me. And almost you can hear her saying, Ophrah and Naomi, I really would like you to come, but you're better off away from me because God is going to strike me with nothing but problems the rest of my life. And if you come with me, you're going to live a miserable life. So go back home. You can almost hear that mother's heart in her saying, you know, I am so stricken, there's never going to be anything good in my go back home. I don't want you to endure 
what I'm going through. I believe and always have that she really is lovingly taking care of these girls by trying to send them back home. Oh yeah, I, I see her mother's heart in this. Mm -hmm. Go back home, it's going to be better for you there. Uh, because there's nothing but, you know, God's against me, and if God's against me, who can be for me is what she's saying. And, you know, I don't want to put you through all the trial that's coming our way. If you stay with me, this is the trials that are going to come our way. She has forgotten that God is good. She has forgotten that God is gracious and merciful and loving and has a plan and blessing for her. She's forgotten all that's happened through the wilderness wanderings, even though when God would bring judgments upon him, that he would always deliver. She's forgotten all the times when the judges, where people have gone into sin and, and, and uh, bondage and then been rescued. Okay, you know, she has a short-sightedness, but you know, we can't criticize her because we've all done the same thing. You know, if we're not careful, it's easy to look at, look at the problems and say, God, nothing ever will be good again. And that leads to depression and misery and despair. You know, to look and say, God, oh, nothing but bad. You know, what's really bad is when people get into misery and despair when everything's going good. Okay, but she's doing it maybe for the right reasons, she's, but she's still not trusting God. And we see this. And then Ruth, you know, and then Ophel decides, okay, you know, if God's against you and you really want me to leave, I'm going to go back home. And she kisses Naomi and goes back. And it says that Ruth claved to her, held her tight. I'm not leaving you. Okay. Uh, this is the way we're supposed to be as Christians as we come to God. Held on so tight to him that we're not going to leave him no matter what. Unfortunately, it's not usually what we do. Uh, and, you know, Naomi says, you know, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Okay? Look, she returned back to her people and to her gods. You know, I really believe that Part of this statement, if she had left and to her gods, maybe Ruth might have been convinced to leave, but I think Ruth was convinced, I want to follow your God. I think she'd already fallen in love with God during the period of time there. And I think if Naomi had left off and after her God, she might have been more likely to think about it, but I'm going to say, go back to her God, your gods. It, the attitude is, I've already chosen a new God. I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing in here to prove that other than we see the the way she's honorable and, and following God and gets in the line of Jesus uh, to kind of indicate this. But I kind of think that that's part of what was going on here. And then Ruth gives one of the most beautiful statements that is quoted all over the place. Entreat me not to leave or to return to follow after, from following after you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be your people. And then the most important statement, your God will be my God. Now, where you die, I will do it, die, and I will be buried there. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death separate us. This is one of the most beautiful statements, and it's going to be repeated in, in Bethlehem. It's going to be her knowledge. I will not leave you. Now, whatever reason, you know, your God will be my God, her love for Naomi, you know, her love for God, whatever the reason was for going, she goes, I am not going to be separated from you. You've introduced me to a new God, and I'm going to follow him no matter what. What a difference in the picture. Naomi, full of bitterness and despair. Ruth, you've got a God who's going to bless you. 
know, hasn't really said that, but you know, her idea was your God is more important than my God's, and I'm going to follow you wherever you go with that God, and I'm looking forward to what he's going to do. Maybe she understood that God blesses. Either what, Ruth, either what Naomi has done or what she has learned probably from Naomi about God. Okay, she's been told the stories of how God has, has protected them, given them the promised land, delivered them from Egypt, provided for them in the wilderness. Uh, the stories of the judges. I think, I actually think, yes, she loves Naomi, but I think it's more she's fallen in love with the God that Naomi has taught her about. And Naomi's obviously, even in her bitterness, taught her the stories about God. Okay? And I really do believe that. Now, it doesn't say that. But just when you look at her attitude, your God will be my God. You know, you know that she's heard the stories. They've, they've gone through them. They've pra practiced the Passover. They've, they've talked about what God has done and how God has given them the promised land. I'm going back to the promised land. I'm going back to where, where God, the land that God has given us. Which, of course, would leave Ruth to go, well, what do you mean God gave you that land? If she hadn't heard it already, what do you mean God gave you that land? Which would have led to Passover and the, and the Exodus and God providing for the 40 years in the wilderness. So I really do believe that, yes, Naomi did something to, t to instill God into Ruth. But Ruth is saying, I fall in love with your God. I don't want to go back to these, these false gods. I don't want to go back to this land where... Where I'm, you know, if I do get married to another another man in Moab, he's not going to want me to worship your God. I'm going with you. You know, I'm going to worship your God. Even if I never get married again, I'm going to worship your God. Okay, there's a lot of faith in this statement. You know, and you see the difference between the two. The woman who feels totally rejected and that God has abandoned her, and one who says, "I can't wait to see what God's going to do." I really do think that that's what Ruth was saying. Okay. You had a God that provided for you through the wilderness. He gave you the promised land. He delivered you from, from Egypt. Look at all these things that he's done. I just can't wait to see what God's going to do from all of this. And this is when we be truly believe that all things work together for good. We're in the middle of the trial. And it's God, I just can't wait to see how you're going to make this work out. I don't I God, I just can't see how you're going to make this work out. But God, I just can't wait to see how you're going to make this work out for good. Naomi has forgotten all this. Ruth, I think, is seeing it. She's looking forward to it. I just can't. I don't know what God's going to do, but I want to see. I want to see how God's going to turn this for good. You know, and you know, as Christians, don't you just love being around those who are looking at what is God going to do? You know, rather than bemoaning every bad thing that happens to them. They're hard to deal with. They're hard to be around. But when people are looking, I go, God's got a plan. He's going to do something. He's going to do something, and I'm looking forward to what, it's going to, what he's going to do. Don't know what it is. Don't know how he's going to do it. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that, I've given that, guy, that my statement quite often. God, I don't understand how this is going to work good, but I am, I am waiting to see. I'm just waiting to see because you're sovereign. You're going to make it. You said you're going to make it good. You will make it good. Now, it doesn't make it all that much easier to go through the hard time, but my focus and your focus should not be on the problem. It's on there's going to be a blessing. God's going to do something. God will do something for good. And as I've said before, in my office, this is science saying, what is the value of a soul? What would you be willing to go through 
if one soul gets saved? Would you go through extreme pain, the loss of a limb, the loss of a front body, your, your body, you know, through being a quadriplegic or something? If somebody would come to Christ, would you be willing to go through that? It would be hard to do, wouldn't it? But yet, how much do we love one soul? You know, who knows what God's got in planned? You know, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, made a quadriplegic at 17. Wanting to kill herself. She mentioned that over and over in her book and movie and her, and her testimony. Wanting to kill herself. She did not want to live as a quadriplegic and now she has a ministry that reaches around the world to, to disabled people. Would she have had that ministry if she had been healed miraculously or never been hurt? I doubt it. God gave her a love and a desire to help those who were like her. Now she'll tell you right off, there's nothing good about being in that wheelchair for the rest of her life. But God has used it for good to give her a ministry. What can God do in our life if we will just let him use what we look at as bad and watch how he uses it? You know, boy, would it change the way we react. If we change the way we react, it would change, you know, we'd be looking for, okay, God, just can't wait. You know, can you imagine if Job's story was God, you know, Job saying, okay, God, I know you promised good things. I don't know why I don't know why you've taken everything away from me, but I'm looking forward to whatever's good. Now of course he had three friends trying to help him look at the bad side of things, but uh, you know and he started out right. You know, God gives, God takes. And he started out right. And constant bombardment from those friends really led him down the wrong path. And this is why we have to be careful who we listen to. Because oftentimes we'll listen to negative voices in our head. And if you listen to a negative voice long enough, it's going to make you forget that God is going to work all things together for good and live in the misery. Naomi's been listening to the wrong voices. All right. Verse 19. So the two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right. So they get back. They've been away at least 10 years, as we saw earlier. Maybe, maybe more, depending on when that 10 years starts. And they come back. And the first question that people ask is, is this Naomi? Now, this indicates to me that Naomi does not look the same way as she did when she went out. She went out joyful. She went out happy. And she's coming back. When she comes back, she is careworn, worry-worn. Have you ever noticed that when people suffer from a lot of worry and cares, they appear to, to age, they appear to, to look very different, and this is the way she returns. Probably looking very old, probably looking worn out, slumped shoulders. She's only been gone 10 years, and she was an older person, so there shouldn't be that many changes in her appearance. And they look at her and say, is this Naomi? You know, it might have been just a question, is this Naomi returning home? Uh, but, you know, I think then you would have said, hi, Naomi, welcome back. 
Not, is this really Naomi? It kind of looks like her, but maybe not. And then we really get into uh, Naomi's answer. You know, call me not Naomi. Remember, that means delight. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You know, I'm no longer delight, I'm bitter. That tells you her attitude or frame of reference and probably that she is looking old, haggard, and, and drawn. And, uh, you know, and he says, For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Well, he usually does when you sin. <laughs> uh, and I went out full, and I have returned home empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me delight, seeing that the Lord is against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. She does not trust God at this point in her life. Uh, God has come against her, in her opinion, and it is no hope. God is never going to bless her. And again, she is looking completely at the problems in her life with no hope, no, no joy, no desire, no trust in God. She has been religious, probably. She has not been in a relationship with God during this period of time. She is just trying to be obedient, follow rules. And we hear this from a lot of people who are just being religious. God, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I came to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I prayed to you. I did this. I did that. I followed all the prescribed things. And God, you just aren't blessing me. And God never promised to bless activities. He says, I bless relationship. I want to be in a relationship with you. Naomi's not in that relationship with him. And she is sad. And then it just says in the last little saying, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley season. That gives us a time marker. They returned to, to Bethlehem in the early spring, sometime around April or May, because that is the barley harvest in, in ancient Israel. So this gives us a time marker. That's the, that's the other barley harvest. Yeah, they're coming around Passover. Which also would be redemption and all the pictures of, the, of all of that. They don't, it doesn't show them celebrating Passover, so, but it would be the right time. <laughs> they maybe just passed it, but right in that general area. All right, we're going to end there. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the picture that you've given us, Lord. Lord, help us to always look at the fact that you are a good God, that you've got a plan for our life. It is a good plan and that you will always make everything work out for good in our lives. And just keep us as we go about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.